Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millions, coddled entitled narcissistic, workshy, and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It'll really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. It's your host, Ali Jaffe, and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Today's episode is part of a three-part sequence on a theme very close to my heart, integrative oncology. In today's episode, I'll be talking to two amazing charities that help empower patients and people living with cancer to live well, Penny Bron and Yes to Life. Cancer is a very emotive topic, so those listening, please feel free to listen to it in bite-sized chunks, as I'm sure there'll be parts that are moving, but please be assured it will be incredibly informative and truly wonderful to hear the work of people out there who have been affected by cancer and who want to better the lives of their patients. Make sure to listen to part two of this sequence, where I'll be talking to Sophie from True Fields Festival and John, founder of Chemo Cookery who are incredibly empowered people who have suffered from cancer in the past and are out there trying to promote the message around nutrition and cooking and community. Part three, I'll really be zooming in to the links between nutritional science and oncology, the specialty of cancer. So for those very inclined to want to know the details of how our food interacts with our immune system, please stay tuned and make sure to listen to it. So now let me introduce our fantastic guests. Penny Bron is a UK cancer charity based in Bristol, understanding that people need more than medicine to live well with cancer. The Bristol Whole Life Approach, a model of integrative whole person care, lies at the core of what Penny Bron do. They recognise that all parts of ourselves, mind, body, spirit and emotions, are closely connected and work together with our immune system to stay well. In light of this approach, Penny Bron offers integrative courses, therapies, counselling, support and online resources in order to support patients with cancer and the support networks around them. Now on to Penny Bron's medical director, Dr Catherine Zolman, who is a true hero of mine and someone who has inspired me since my first year at medical school. Dr Zolman trained in medical oncology before becoming an NHS GP. She is currently the medical director of Penny Brom and specialises in integrative medicine. Alongside her clinical work, she has worked as a medical director of the Research Council for Complementary Medicine. She has also co-authored the BMJ series and book An ABC of Complementary Medicine. And now on to Robin. Robin Daly is the chairman and founder of Yes to Life, the UK's integrative care cancer charity 
providing support, information and financial assistance to those with cancer seeking to pursue approaches that are currently only available from private practitioners. Robin's daughter, Bryony, contracted cancer aged nine years old, sadly dying at 23 after two reoccurrences. He was prompted to set up the charity in light of the difficulties his family faced with regards to treatment choices. He hopes that the work that his charity does will provide support and help to others in similar situations. These two guests are truly great Samaritans and it's an absolute pleasure to have them on the podcast today. Catherine, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. I think the last time I saw you, we were having a lovely meal made by Liz and Trevor Thompson in Bristol. So we're to be speaking to you virtually, but nevertheless, great to have you on the podcast. So could you briefly just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? So yes, I've been an NHS GP for um, just over 20 years now, um, and before going into general practice, I trained in medical oncology. Um, and I've been clinical lead and now medical director at Pennybron UK for the last 10 or so years. And I've had an interest in holistic medicine and integrative approaches since being a medical student, really. So, really identify with you and where you're at, and really recognise that sort of passion um, in myself, discovering discovering the sort of opportunities and the possibilities to really use these techniques alongside my medical knowledge to improve the, the sort of clinical effectiveness of the work that I was doing and to help patients get more out of their interaction with the health services. So, in my work at Penny Brown, that's what I try and do. In my work in a general practice setting. That's what I try and do, um, bring a bit more resilience and a bit more breadth to our healthcare conversations. Um, so that's me. Absolutely. So you really are all about adding more tools in your toolkit to better patient care, which is yeah, something I definitely advocate for. So for our listeners who may be a bit uncertain, could you just define what integrative medicine is? Yeah, so... I think the short definition that I tend to work with is that integrative medicine is the intelligent, individualised combination of conventional approaches, lifestyle approaches and complementary healthcare interventions so that each person can really get to access the best combination of all of these different approaches that can work together synergistically for their particular situation and condition. So that's the short answer, but there is a longer answer because I think integrative medicine really is part of a, a movement now within healthcare to help people be at the centre of their own health and their own health creation um, and really to help recognise that we've all got these intrinsic abilities to move towards health and well-being if we give ourselves the right conditions. And I think so much of medicine is a kind of doing to um uh, model, whereas actually there's this kind of, actually if we back off and let the body um, and the mind and, and the whole sort of human organism work in the way in which it was designed, actually an awful lot of our modern day uh, long-term conditions would just sort themselves out. So I think there's that kind of aspect as well, which is give people the, the control and the sense that they are the experts in their own health and that they need a team of experts in different modalities around them, but also that there's that we're fundamentally we're connected our minds and our bodies and our spirits and our emotions are all connected and, and we've got to see things in the round to really give people the best chances of 
living well, staying well, being well into, into a healthy old age. Oh, and it's so interesting you bring up the stance of that kind of notion of too much medicine and um, with what you were talking about, the body's own intelligence system and being able to harness what it can really do on its own through different modalities like nutrition and exercise. And that does remind me of a talk I went to at Bristol actually um, with the, BMG, the chief of the BMJ, Fiona Godley, talking about too much medicine and polypharmacy and overprescription. So it's really interesting that you shed light on you know this new model of medicine or newer model of medicine on integrative medicine integrative medicine sorry and um, so could you just tell us a little bit about uh, before we hear about everything that you do nowadays could you just tell us a little bit about you as a medical student and um, what it was like training and how you became interested in it what were you noticing um, with the teaching that made you want to look beyond so it's a really good question. I mean, I think I was a very, very sciencey um, young, you know, entrant into medical school. I didn't, I hadn't even done biology. I'd done maths, physics, and chemistry. My dad was an engineer. Nobody in my family did a doctor, so I thought I was really coming to do science. Um, and I think very quickly, um, I was lucky to be introduced to a couple of really thought-provoking lectures in my undergraduate time. So we were. I was at Oxford and we had a very, very pre-clinical first three years, so we didn't meet the patient at all, but I went to some amazing lectures um, run through the psychology department, actually, about mind and matter and some of the connections there, and also was introduced to the, the newly founded British Holistic Medical Association, where a group of clinicians from lots doctors, but also um, nurses, counsellors, complementary therapists were coming together to discuss how they could work better together. Um, and address people's more holistic needs. So I think my curiosity was sort of peaked at that at that stage. But then when I actually came to start my work on the wards, I think it became really clear that a lot of the medicine we were learning about was fantastic. You know, there were new treatments coming out for all sorts of things, but great for for dealing with acute illness, acute sort of um, illnesses that needed intensive um, and high tech solutions. But a lot of the people on the wards were really left rather unsatisfied by that. We were seeing the same people coming back and back again, and it felt like we were sort of missing a bit of the, of the jigsaw, really, or missing a bit of the picture. And so I think then, then I started learning a lot more about nutrition, about some of the um, approaches that complementary medicine has to offer, and did a, enrolled on a, on a foundation course in counselling, recognising the power of the mind um, to affect physical symptoms and physical sort of presentations. So, and it, it was interesting because it was definitely a minority pursuit then. And I think, uh, you know, you almost have to keep it quiet and be, be better than everybody else at the conventional stuff if you wanted to get taken seriously at all. Um, because it was considered very woo-woo, very tree-huggy and, and really quite irrelevant to a lot of the medicine that we were learning. Um, nowadays, I think, you know, I, I don't know whether how it is for you, Ali, but I feel it's, it's so much more interesting. And as you say, there are so many more groups the overdiagnosis group, the, the sort of um, too much medicine group, the hello my name is, the, the sort of placebo research that's going on, uh, British Society for Lifestyle Medicine, there's just so many different different groups all sort of recognising that 
that actually we do need a broader definition of health and well-being and we need a bigger toolkit and we need to be a bit more respectful of what patients have been doing and telling us that that, that has been helping them for so long that we've been kind of slightly ignoring mm. and putting putting on the side and I think the more I specialised in cancer the more I moved towards working in that field the more it became really obvious that particularly in that field but very true for all other aspects of medicine as well in my general practice too but particularly in cancer it's an illness that impacts every aspect of people's lives and conventionally we really don't have the answer it's a lot of the treatments even if they you know we don't have a cure for everybody and even if we do have a cure it comes at a really high price um, and the the role of com- complementary and lifestyle approaches to make a difference to that is just huge and I'm sure we'll be hearing from other people who, who will talk us through a bit more directly that but that became very obvious and I just I think it's also and you'll probably echo this too that the more you talk to people and the more that you listen to them with open questions and an open mind the more you hear that they don't see a separation between conventional medicine mm-hmm. and lifestyle approaches and complementary therapies they're doing they're integrating this all themselves so I wanted to be part of that, really. I didn't want to feel that I'm, I'm only the doctor who you can talk to about these things. Anything that was affecting their health, I wanted to know about and learn more about and be able to use for the next person who I met. So it was an interesting time. And luckily, luckily, I met a group of other like-minded students and medical students who have maintained, you know, who've remained my very good friends. You mentioned this and Trevor Thompson. You know, I, was, I met Trevor in my first year of medical school and we've remain very firm friends and have sparked ideas off each other and that really helps so I would say to anybody who's who's listening who is a, a medical student interested in these sort of things find find your your tribe because there are other people out there who think this way and it's very lonely if you are on your own you think am I the only person who sees it this way am I going a bit mad am I lost the plot but actually I think there's a big group of people who are also feeling this way and the more you can connect with them the more you can get support and learn and be inspired. No, you said it so well, and it is so important to find your tribe. I'm so grateful to be at the University of Bristol, which has so many incredible clinicians and the kind of backdrop of the city that is, you know, quite sustainable and full of healthy living initiatives. And so it's really inspired me. And, you know, that's where I met my co-founder in Broadley. And we've tried to make all these mini tribes across the UK through our Nutritank branches so that people can fly the flag for this type of thinking and this type of approach within their own medical school and really try and get um, you know, the deans and the medical faculty to listen to try and make it compulsory for um, medical training. So completely right there with finding your tribe. And yeah, so amazing that you and Trevor now live in the same city and it's just amazing how it all comes full circle and both teach um, at Bristol. Um, so you mentioned that you've undergone quite a bit of training and um, you've done the, some courses you know to add um, those tools to your toolkit as a clinician i know that you went over to arizona to um, practice alongside you know the father of integrative medicine um dr andrew vile and um, why did you make that decision were you seeing that there wasn't a cl- enough of a climate for it in the uk at the time was it just really Um, pumping in Arizona? How did it all happen? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, I I was, the the fellowship there, so I'd love to have practiced alongside Andrew. It was really a a two-year distance learning fellowship program that I joined. Um, But I had the privilege of going over to Arizona for three residential blocks over those two years. 
And I think what really, I mean, it, this was something I applied for because an opportunity came up. As you probably know, you know, professional training in America is so much more expensive than it is here. And this was a fully funded scholarship offered through the College of Medicine, um, who I know you've, you've been linked with. So they're an organisation um, of mainly healthcare professionals, but also members of the public and students who are trying to promote um, learning and an in incorporation of these, these approaches in the UK healthcare system. And they offered two fellowships to this programme. And I think one of the things that really appealed was that we were being taught there by integrative doctors who were absolutely at the peak of their conventional practice as well as their integrative practice. So they were embedded in hospital departments, um, really teaching. So we had talks from specialist rheumatologists, specialist cardiologists, specialist obstetrician obs practitioners, um, specialist pediatricians, all talking about a really integrative model. Because I think in this, in this country, we've still got the kind of, there are doctors who are interested in this, but they've often left the NHS, will do it as a separate sideline in the NHS uh, from their NHS work. And so this was a real opportunity to learn from people who were very experienced at actually practically integrating these things alongside each other. And also there was the opportunity to meet, you know, 80 other doctors from all around the States and in fact all around the world who were also trying to do this from many different specialities. And so it was a really well-established course with fantastic online learning materials, but also that depth of, of clinical experience that came with people who'd really, who were really walking the talk. So it was an amazing experience. And I kind of brought, some, brought that learning back and have hopefully been, you know, trying to spread some of that into some of the education events that we run through the College of Medicine, into some of the undergraduate teaching at University of Bristol, into some of the, the work that we've done at Penny Bronze. So, uh, and obviously the National Centre for Integrative Medicine, so that's another Bristol-based organisation um, headed up by Dr Elizabeth Thompson, who, and they're, they're running the closest equivalent to the fellowship that I did in the States. Um, that is in England. It's a two-year diploma course in integrative medicine, which is again really, you know, really deep, really thought through, and very transformative to the people, to the doctors who've, who've come through that program. So that's yeah. that's another opportunity. I had um, speaking of that program run by NCIM. I had Dr. Sally Moorcroft and uh, Dr. Sumi Chatterjee, a lovely double act of GPs who've um, taught and been on the programme, come on the podcast last week. So, yes, really so good to hear the perspective. Let's hear a bit more about that, yeah. Brilliant. And so, um, you mentioned your work with College of Medicine. How did you get involved in College of Medicine and what is it that you actually do with them? So, the College, I mean, I think.
at the College of Medicine, we've also made sure that we're inviting food producers and food growers to help because we recognise it's bigger than just the health system itself. Um, how do you transform the nation's health needs us to really engage with communities, really engage with all sorts of other sectors of society too. So it, the aim, I guess, of the College of Medicine is really to forge these partnerships across society and kind of emphasise prevention and this kind of multifaceted, multidisciplinary approach to, to sort of empower a healthier, happier population. And so we run education events, we run um, campaigns, courses, conferences, trying to educate whoever whoever um, is interested and trying to bring together like-minded people um, who are interested in being part of this kind of healthcare I, I don't call it a healthcare revolution, but I think it's a healthcare evolution. I think that's where we need to take it. I think that's completely right. And I'm so grateful to the College of Medicine because I would say that that's probably the organisation that really set me off on my path. Um, I went, remember I went to my first event at the end of first year um, on mental health, and that's where I met your lovely daughter Jess at the Weekend Away conference in Birmingham before she even started medical school. Um, and ever since then it's just provided the most incredible mentorship network um, to meet you know doctors the generation above me who have done it in their career and you know act as an inspiration and uh, we were lucky enough to collaborate with them on um, which your daughter helped so much with on the sustainability um, healthcare conference um, a couple years ago at UCL which was a huge success and so it really has been a great way to meet like-minded students and um, yeah, Dr. Mike Dixon, he's an absolute, he's an absolute hero. So <laughs> um, yeah, been so great uh, being part of that. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, kind of your journey with integrative medicine and how you've managed to um, kind of persuade other NHS workers to kind of join your tribe or, you know, just inspire them to join your tribe rather than persuade and how you've perhaps handled any sceptics that have come along in the way uh, during your work over the years? It's a really good question and I think, I think there's is several different ways of approaching it. I think what I said earlier about being a medical student, I think you have to be solid in your clinical practice, be somebody who, who who puts the patient first or puts the, the person in front of you first. And I think because sceptics or not sceptics, really, if you're in healthcare, your main aim is the health of the person in front of you. If we can keep bringing it back to that rather than focusing on the differences between us, really focus on the similarities, I think that goes a long way. I think um, that it's... that speaking the same language is really important. And so... Uh, um, there are some words that are quite inflammatory and quite divisive and, and again it's, it's silly because sometimes we're all talking about the same thing but it's just the words that we use that are different and I think over the years I think focusing on those more common more common um, areas um, and then once you've established credibility then people trust you a little bit more and then they're prepared to, to see and I also think that actually stories from empowered um, people who've used the services that I've been involved with have then gone back and talked to their more sceptical consultants or whatever and actually that's often paved the way so again it kind of all boils down to what I said earlier 
really, if you think of the person in front of you, the patient or the mm-hmm. client or whoever it is, as the expert in their own care, if you can, if you can help empower them, their stories make the difference because it's their outcomes. I think also research um, and and really trying to get a handle on um, how how you can do good quality research. I think recognizing that the randomized control trial isn't the isn't the best tool for a lot of lifestyle and complementary approaches but then we've got to come up with sensible Mm -hmm. alternatives um, and actually practice-based evidence rather than evidence-based practice I think can really help so I think um, I think it's I think progress is being made I also think it's really interesting how a newer generation is is sort of coming up mainly because I think their own resilience has been challenged and they've had to look elsewhere for their own health and well-being and I think often it's it's the doctors or the or, or the sort of you know biochemists or whatever who've actually found that yoga is the only thing that helps their low back pain or that mindfulness really helps when they get stressed or, or, or are finding it difficult to cope and then another again a door opens but I think rather than being judgmental and trying to to sort of polarize it this is better than this I think for me it, it helps when we just see them all as tools that may have their appropriate place and that one may be better at one time in one situation than another but none, none of them is the best and none of them is irrelevant and I and I think you know I think also being I often say be open-minded but not so open-minded that your brains fall out because I think there are there are people who, on all sides of, of, of the table who are not in it for the best reasons and so being kept able to sort of call people out if, if you feel they're making unjustified claims about things or or not listening to not listening to patients or, or, or in some other way being fraudulent or being being charlatans in any other way. There there are those people and I think it, if we can make sure that what we're talking about is safe, appropriate, um, you know, constantly constantly um, reevaluated approaches that with the set patient at the centre of it and if it's not working for them then we think again. Completely. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. It is, it is such a tricky one, and I do try and ask every uh, clinician who comes on how they manage the sceptics, because it's so important to understand how we can strike a balance between uh, conventional medicine and not brand all these different modalities like nutrition, stress management, whatever, as alternative, because that's when you polarise it. And that's really comes down to the word integrative and how it should yeah. all be integrated into a clinician's toolbox um you know to disseminate information to their patients and to the patient's care and um yeah like you were saying the field is you know it's complicated and it lends itself to muddy waters and that fraudster um, activity that you spoke about where people can make um you know justifications and overclaim on certain uh, qualities of food and whatnot which you know becomes quite complicated for a patient seeking credible information and so um, like you say the research is really important to just make sure that everything is quality controlled that's going out there and it's really good to see that the BMJ's launched a new journal um, uh, nutrition prevention and health so that we can really see good quality papers all in one place and I guess it's just really tricky to regulate as well. So going off on a tangent, but hopefully we'll see, you know, the social media space um, having a bit more regulation around uh, areas of nutrition and, and advocates who talk about it. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
can be very tricky. And I think also recognising that, you know, in conventional medicine, we're so used to there's one drug that is right for everybody. And I think with a lot of these more integrative approaches, we do have to personalise it. So mm-hmm. so recognising that there may be many answers, and, and that's, that's okay too, but helping people find the right one for them feels really important. Exactly. There's so much nuance. So, on to um, the main topic. I want to hear all about Pennybron. Um, I was so lucky to actually visit your wonderful site a couple summers ago when I was on the Culinary Medicine Student Selected Module led by um, Dr. Rupi Orgula from Doctor's Kitchen and Professor Trevor Thompson, who's Professor of Primary Care at Bristol. And um, it was honestly probably the highlight of my course. We got to come to Pennybron and um, we had the Great British Salad Off. Um, hope, I hope all the listeners are laughing and cringing at that at the same time. So we basically got a wonderful tour of the site of Penny Braun, um, saw the treatment rooms and the beautiful facilities, and then we got to meet some of the lovely patients there. And um, we were in partners, uh, the medical students, we were all in partners. And we had to come up with the most nutritious, most creative salad to um, serve the lovely residents at dinner time. And yeah, it was just so much fun. And I remember. It was nutritious and delicious, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was our tagline. So, yeah, um, tell us how it all started and the story and history behind Penny Brum. So, Penny Brum. It's a charity, again, it was actually set up 40 years ago this year um, by Penny Braun, who was um, a young woman from Bristol who developed breast cancer in the 1970s, um, and her friend Pat Pilkington, um, who was uh, a a healer and um, was involved in the Bristol sort of healing community. And Penny, when she was diagnosed, she was was young and... she, when she had the treatment that the NHS um, offered at that time, she really clearly felt that it wasn't addressing everything that she felt she needed in order to help her get well. And so she travelled across Europe and she and, and travelled beyond and was really looking for the kind of holistic care that she felt she needed to really sort of address the, the psychological, the emotional and the spiritual aspects of, of her health, which she felt had been an important factor for her in in the cancer developing, but also more importantly, in how she was going to get better again. Um, and when, after she'd done all of that travelling, she decided to set up a, a centre in the UK where people can access these sorts of things without having to travel. Um, and since that time, the charity's changed a huge amount. It was initially called the Bristol Cancer Health Centre, and it was, you mentioned the word alternative, and at that time, it was quite an alternative centre. But over the 40 years um, that it's been serving clients and anybody affected by cancer, it has really evolved into a much more integrative um, centre where we um, offer people support and and self-management education, um, which means that we kind of help people really find the tools that they can use, but also recognise that sometimes, especially when you're in the middle of a healthcare crisis, you're not going to be able to self-manage everything and you do need some actual support too. So we have a range of different professionals who, um, in our therapy team, we have counsellors, we have nutritional therapists, we have integrative doctors like myself, we've got massage um, practitioners, shiatsu practitioners, acupuncturists, and we will come up with a programme and help people find their own programme that works alongside whatever conventional treatment they're 
side and build their resilience so that they really are using that kind of we have a, a, a sort of phrase that we use we say it's more than medicine you know so that people can use more than medicine to really give themselves the best chances of living as well as possible for as long as possible after their cancer diagnosis and so we really think about all sorts of things i've met you know with that range of, of professionals we can think about all sorts of sustainable and enjoyable ways that people can incorporate these different tools and use them things like you know sleep improving their sleep um helping them manage their stress, helping them look at factors in the workplace or in their relationships that might be having an impact on their health. So it's really anything that we that they feel is having an impact on their health, we can help them um, help them sort of incorporate that and address that as part of their overall anti-cancer strategy. And it often helps people to feel more in control and, and sort of less helpless and hopeless about their situation. Because many people are in a plunged into this initial state of shock and then told you just leave it to us doctors we'll sort it out just you know come to your appointments take the treatment that we prescribe for you and 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 that's all that's needed and I think a lot of people find that very disempowering um and and therefore feel quite unsettled and you know food is a wonderful way we you know nutrient obviously the central thing of it, it fits beautifully within an integrative medicine model but food particularly is something that uh early on people often latch onto as something that they can take control of and that they can really use on a daily basis to increase their health and well-being so it's a, a wonderful tool but we can talk more about how it's not the only tool and it needs to be seen within that bigger context because sometimes it can also be very stressful as you've indicated mm. trying to get the right the right foods and the right supplements and the right and, and it can actually sometimes we have to tell people look back off back off that's not the biggest problem right now let's let's sort some of the other things out because it's just um winding you up into an unhelpful spiral absolutely no of course um and i guess that's why you have the experts there to help guide people so they're not on their own and they can make it manageable um, so could you explain how it works for a person to join up with the services offered at Penny Braun? Are there structures in place at GP practices that refer into Penny Braun? I know it's a charity, so it's, um, yeah, it funds the places for people to come and be residents. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Yeah, really good question, Ali. So, I mean, this is all, we're recording this podcast in a time of COVID lockdown <laughs> and isolation where actually the beautiful centre that you mentioned is, is physically closed to staff and to people um, with cancer, obviously. So things things are probably never going to be quite the same again. But um, up until now, we've offered people, it's a self-referral um, system. So people don't need to be referred by anybody. They can just pick up the phone or go on our website and book onto one of our courses. Um, and that still is the case at the moment. So um, although we're physically closed, we've got a number of online and telephone services that are still running and we've got a very active website, Facebook page um, and Instagram. Uh, so we are uh, not Instagram. Yeah, we do have an Instagram and a Twitter account. So we're, we're, we're present and very much active in supporting people at the moment. But normally we'd offer a range of different things, which include residential courses so people can come and actually stay at the centre when it's open and and actually be um, learn about some of these things in a group setting and, and actually sometimes that group setting is really important because people meet other people in similar situations to themselves maybe with very different diagnoses maybe very different stages of their illness but all connected by the fact that they have a, a relationship with cancer um, and also the fact that it's people are coming with 
very different cancers makes them realise that what we're the, the tools and techniques that we're really specialised in teaching them about are about them as a person rather than a particular illness, somebody with a particular illness. So it's actually about recognising the factors that each individual can find to build their own resilience. So it's more about the people rather than the disease, which I think is a different way of looking at things, which often really helps people see that they have cancer, cancer doesn't have them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, those are the residential courses, and they're usually kind of people come for two nights and stay, and it's we're offering this all on a donation-only basis, or we have been, and you know that's that also is challenging for us as a charity because it's obviously quite you know we give them their food, we give them their accommodation, um, we give them all the sort of facilitation and the and the skills of those different professionals I mentioned. So um, it's lovely when people can support us, and we depend very much on people's donations and um, and contributions to keep the place to keep the place running. But we also run day services um, for people who, um, who who are living more locally and can come just for an hour's class. So we've got yoga, we've got morning walking, we've got a choir, we've got some creative therapies which people can do. We do cookery demonstrations, all sorts of creative writing. We really try and sort of address all the different aspects that somebody might want to put into their into their sort of health and well-being maintenance program if you think a bit like that um just to give people tasters and and again there's nothing we're hoping to make people independent so that they can then go back into their local communities and find those sorts of things and create those sorts of things for themselves but it's often nice to have a starter Mm -hmm. way of doing it in a safe um environment where you know they know that all the other people will be understanding of, of their situation and all the professionals involved will know how to make these things um, safe and appropriate for people who are, who are on a cancer journey or who are in active treatment or recovering out the other side of it. Um, and then we've also got the telephone and, um, and online services as well um, that people can access. So it really is, we, we're hoping to create a very dynamic community as well where people really feel able to give us their feedback and, and often our, the people who volunteer for us, some, many of them are, are ex-service users um, who, who've been involved with it, people who, who raise money for us. We're very much a community um, and really want to learn as much from our inspiring clients as, as they learn from us. I think that's amazing what you've highlighted and what's so special about organisations that not only is there that peer-to-peer support that exists around the residents that come and do it, but it's that whole kind of longevity of their experience with Penny Bron that even once they have recovered, they come back and donate their time and um, care to people who are currently in the midst of all of it. So it's, yeah, it's truly remarkable, that cycle that you've created. Um, they can be teachers as well, I think. It's, it can be so inspiring yeah, to, I think... the system to meet somebody who's, who's coming out the other side of treatment or who's, who's down the line or, or maybe who's even struggling because actually mm. I think, you know, I think... You know, not everybody with cancer will get better. So to have some have some inspiring role models of, of how to handle that, you know, even the worst case scenario can be can be made a bit better. And um, actually, that's that's really inspiring too. Completely, it's just it sounds very empowering. I think that's the word that I just resonates the most when I think of this type of model of care. And um, so, do you have? people that come from all over the country. I know you guys are based in Pill in the southwest, right by Bristol. Um, but do you have people that come from all over? Absolutely. Um, and we've even had people who come from other countries, not just not um, not just 
not just the UK. Um, and what's lovely with with the, the way the services are, have evolved in the COVID lockdown is that actually we're making a lot more of our groups accessible online. So the people who visited us once but may live in, say, Derbyshire or in the Lake District or in Scotland are actually now being able to join the weekly groups, um, which is lovely. And I think we'll want to carry that on you know, even once lockdown finishes, because that's been a lovely way of connecting. So absolutely, from all over. And then they, what's lovely is often they do stay in touch with their, the groups are usually about 12 people. And one of the other important things I didn't say is that we welcome anybody who's supporting somebody with cancer as well. So you don't need to have, you don't need to have a diagnosis yourself Mm -hmm. to use our services, because um, we recognise that a huge amount of um, the resilience of a person is if they're if they're supporters and if they if their sort of networks of support are also resilient and it's often even more challenging and difficult to be sitting by watching a loved one go through um, cancer treatment and, and that takes a huge toll on people and so we really recognise people who are supporting somebody with cancer have have needs um, very very much so so. Um, all our services are just as available to um, to anybody who's affected by can- uh, anybody who's supporting somebody as they are with the diagnosis. And you tend to have a waiting list because it sounds like a hugely popular service, especially if you're accepting people from all over the country. Well, it's we do, but not not all the time, and certainly for these online online services now. But- can expand the groups um, a bit bigger so we're not running the, the courses now um, but we are hoping to bring those online um, but actually um, for for something like counselling where we have to have a, you know six or eight weeks of, of actual blocked out appointments then there's quite a wait for those sorts of things but for one of appointments for people or for some of the, the master classes and the education sessions at the moment definitely not so I'd really encourage anybody to get in touch and see and there's an awful lot of resources and video materials and introductory um, uh, tool toolkit kind of resources that are on our website that people can get started with anyway. I think that's fantastic and although the COVID situation must be so um, challenging especially for cancer patients who have their immune system um, already suppressed it's amazing that you've made your resources so accessible for everyone and people are still able to continue with these virtual social peer-to-peer support groups. So I guess that is one perk and um, it's great that you've adapted to this time. Um, so I was wondering how you on a day-to-day have had your work affected by COVID. So are you calling up your patients um, and blocking out appointments with them? How is it working for you as their clinician? Yeah, so we always did offer telephone appointments as doctors because very much, as you were saying, our catchment area is the whole of the UK and beyond. So we've always recognised that people don't won't necessarily be able to come and see us in person. So we're just doing now, we're doing all of our doctor one-to-one consultations where we, we, we're not, I think it, the doctor service at Pennybron is really quite unique. We're not their GP, we're not their oncologist. We don't prescribe, we don't diagnose, we don't run investigations or tests, but we can be a sort of medical sounding board for people to help them help them frame the right questions to ask from their team, but also help them explore options and alternatives in quite a neutral way because we don't have a product to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not their, their sort of intuitive doctor in a sense um, who they're paying to get private sort of integrative treatment either. So we, we can really help help sort of be a, a bit of a yeah a, a mirror or a, a sort of um an advocate in a sense of helping people frame 
frame their, their, their questions. Um, so that's a wonderful service that we do, and we do that now by Zoom or by uh, or by Skype or by telephone. And we uh, um, and we also run some online educational sessions where there's a kind of bit of a topic presentation and then t- chance for some Q and A's. We're doing regular. The, the groups have now transformed to online groups, so we do a fantastic. Um, physical activity group. We do some cheap. We, we've managed to access a, amazing other services that are suitable for people with cancer. So we can signpost to people to other sort of free and, and cheap services around. So we've got some qigong. We've got some yoga. We've got the Penny Rock Choir operating as an online choir now. Oh, that's brilliant! So, so there's there's various things. Regular relaxation, regular nutrition, one to ones as well for people who are wanting to support their immunity through food, um, and masterclasses around that and how to balance blood sugar and all of it, those sorts of things. And so we're we're trying to evolve as, as quickly and as sort of flexibly as we can to the COVID situation. Sure, and doing a good job at it sounds like it. And so you mentioned you're this sounding board rather than providing treatment and um, managing, you know, the conventional care. So do people who come to Pennybrod have to be at a particular point of wellness within their cancer to be, if you get what I mean, to be at the centre away from their medical doctors? That's a really good question. So again, this is one of the potential upsides of the COVID situation that, that for some of our groups before you had to be physically well enough to get to the centre um, and to, to take part in a in a in a group session now people can do it from their bedroom at home or you know they can adapt some of the the yoga techniques to lying down in their bed um, so we've never said that there's any particular stage um, of of the illness where we that that is a cutoff for us, um, but we haven't in the past really been had the facilities or the resources to go into people's homes if they are no longer well enough to travel or if they're isolating for other other reasons. So it's it's not so much uh, it's more a practical consideration. When the centres open again, we don't we don't actually provide nursing care, so people need to we need to be able to be independent enough to come. And we often say, think about it as a sort of, as a, as a very well adapted hotel. They're very welcome to bring a carer with them if they have physical needs, if they need dressings done or, or injections given or those sorts of things. If, if a carer can come with them who can do that, and it could be anybody, we can arrange for them to have residential rooms which are next to each other, even with interconnecting doors, so mm-hmm. they can have very regular contact. And we're fully disabled access sort of um, equipped so that there, can, there are, you know, wheelchair accessible showers and all of that sort of thing. So people can come who are really quite ill as long as they have that facility to, to be sort of independent. Sure. Yeah, I love how democratic, uh, democratic and non-discriminatory it is. And I think even though, you know, it's not what anyone wanted, but the COVID situation has shed light on how you've made your service even more democratic to people who can't access it by, you know, having it all online and they can still be part of that community. So I think it's brilliant and a truly unique service. And I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners about a case study of someone who's come to the centre that's really stuck in your mind. Gosh, uh, when you it's, when you said that you'd be asking that question, it was more a question I had so many people. I how do you pick? How do I, how do I sort of <laughs> somebody who's and and I think um, the I think one of the people who are who you know I think 
it is people, as you said, who've kind of come back at different stages of what's going on, who who've often developed that relationship, but also taken it each time they've 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 come to us, have sort of taken it a little a little further, a little deeper. And I think uh, there's one lovely lady who was diagnosed with um, bowel cancer that had already spread to her liver when she was in the middle of a very successful career. She had a 14-year-old son um, and had never never had a day's illness in her life and then suddenly present, you know, was told, you've, you've got colon cancer. And she, just by the time she got her head around that, then the CT scan results came through that said, no, this is now stage four and incurable. Mm-hmm. And so from a... And she... She did amazingly well. She had her. She got through her treatment. She really, she really latched into the, the notion that she wanted to do something for her for herself. And in, and her first um, port of call was, as we've said, food. Actually, it was really interesting. She she really sort of absolutely embraced the fact that every every morsel she put in her mouth was a sort of potential to get, do herself some good. And really, sort of really started enjoying her food. Um, transformed the way that she eat, ate. Transformed the way she approached food. And and um, and recognize that stress was a part of it but kind of I, I think that took a little bit longer to sort of she 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 worked really hard and I think the second time she came back to us um I think when she'd really you know she was cooking on gas in terms of the of, of the nutrition she could have given the nutrition talks at Pennywell by that stage but <laughs> but I think the next course she came on which was a sort of deepening things I think suddenly a penny dropped that this isn't it, and in fact, I've managed to make food really enjoyable, but also another busy thing that I have to do. And so, actually, then she took the the next step of really embracing the mindfulness, the relaxation, really looking at, at the store, the sort of her mindset and the and the back chat that she was giving herself about this. I always need to be the one to succeed at everything, and to, and so that was a really powerful second. Um, encounter and she talked very movingly about that and then I think actually she's now she's now died but then there was a, a third and, and very subsequent stages she was she then I mean initially she, she lived very well and really sort of astounded her clinicians about how well she responded to the early chemotherapy that she had she, she said I credit the NHS with keeping me alive mm. but but I credit Penny Brom with showing me how to live, how to live well again, and wow. kind of how to how to actually get back and back on, on the road after the after this sort of life saving treatment. So, yeah. so and and I think then it was really a question of her accepting that after a period where she 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 really set out. She wanted she wanted to see her son's eighteenth birthday, which she did amazingly. He he was a, a stunning young young lad who you know and their relationship was amazing that over the four years that she was living with um metastatic uh, bowel cancer which you know she's been given just a few months at the beginning she she then really started to talk about how she really wanted to live but she was also prepared prepared to not live at any cost and was uh, and i think preparing her son beautifully and she spoke quite a lot about this sort of parallel paths of of, of kind of living with a fierce desire and absolutely every intention to keep keep living and um, keep looking for that cure, but also a real another parallel part of her that that really also wanted if you if her path was not to live, um, you know, into her 60s, 70s, whatever, then to then to do her dying really well and to live every day mm-hmm. in a in a really rich and full way. And she inspired so many of the other clients um, for whom it's often a tricky tricky conversation to, to bring up but she managed to do it so beautifully and so eloquently that she's somebody who really sticks 
in my mind. And, and she talked very beautifully about the spiritual aspect being the last penny to sort of drop, in a sense. But she, by the time she, she died, she was absolutely good. You know, she was she described herself as kind of, although she was dying, she, was ne- she had never lived as well in many ways mm. as she was living towards the end of her life and had really let go of an awful lot of the things that were stopping her living well. So she's somebody who really sticks in my mind as... Um, somebody who really embodies that transformative approach that, that mm-hmm. when you really get get um, involved in integrative medicine, that's something it, it can offer sometimes. Wow, that is such a beautiful story and it, it truly reflects Penny Brown's mantra of living well with cancer. It's incredible. Um, and so to ask you quite a hypothetical question, if you had more finances and resources for Penny Braun, how would you want to expand it to help more? Well, it's a really good question. I, I think I think I would really love to to now that we've had this experience of how much we can do online. I think it would be great to invest in some really good resources to to sort of broaden that out and to and to get the full suite of approaches as accessible to as many people in their own homes as possible, recognising that there is absolutely a place for face-to-face stuff. So I would really want us to then invest in, a, in an academy which can train and teach other, other professionals to be able to deliver that face-to-face care closer to people's homes. So really wanting to um, train and upskill both conventional healthcare professionals in the the value of an integrative approach and familiarise that them with that, but also complementary practitioners and into how to work safely alongside conventional treatment, how to understand it and how to work in that more multidisciplinary way, mm-hmm. so that we could then make sure that there are then almost like an associate network of people who who understand how to work in this way. And I would love us to work more closely with the NHS because in Bristol we've developed really good relationships with our local healthcare providers. We have a penny bomb worker who goes into our local cancer hospital and is there in the chemotherapy day units on the wards in 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 the, in the sort of waiting areas where people are getting their getting their initial sort of inductions into the centre. And we have a lot of referrals from from the local treatment centres. But I would love for that to be the norm rather than the exception. Absolutely. Um, and I think lastly, and I think maybe you know, some of your other speakers today can talk more about this, I would love us to be part of moving the research agenda forward because mm-hmm. I am convinced from what I've seen in my clinical experience that these things can really make a difference, both to quality of life, but also I suspect for some people that when we get it right can make a big difference to actually people's ability to live long as well as well. Um, and, and I think we really need to research more about what's going on there and, and, and how we can facilitate that and enable that to happen more often. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And um, so just to cover the last point, I know that you're also really passionate about upskilling medical students in yes. this area. And um, I think that's absolutely wonderful. So I know um, you offer a Penny Braun uh, integrative medicine a special choice module at Bristol alongside Dr Duncan Still, another integrative medical GP. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? So yes, for the last three years we've been hosting medical students from the University of Bristol 
and even sort of looking into whether we can possibly host some from other medical schools. But they've come and done a, a month-long placement with us. Um, and um, we also recently ran, so that's for third and fourth year medical students we've done it, but we've also this year, um, this year, last year ran for the first time um, a second year module, um, which was looked at more resilience um, and how, how students can learn about um, tools that help both their own resilience to get through medical school, but also the resilience of the patients that they are going to be meeting. So, we're, and it's lovely because it's been a very immersive sort of um, student placement where people have really got a chance to shadow different practitioners, but also meet clients and people who are going through the journey and, and have really quite in-depth conversations with them about what matters to them. And I think that whole, that's another lovely mantra as a, as a uh, of integrative medicine. It's not about what's the matter with somebody, mm-hmm. but it's about finding out what matters to them because that's mm-hmm. what unlocks their health and well-being. And so they've really had a chance to have those kind of very open conversations with people about what is it that you feel has made a difference here? You know, what, what is it that you feel has helped you access the things that have, that have actually supported your well-being and resilience? And so really hearing it from hearing it from a number of different perspectives we've really got them to sit down with our research and evaluation team and help them critically appraise the literature around this so that they can sort of hone their thinking and they can be advocates for this so it's and the feedback's been wonderful actually and quite a lot of the students have then gone on to join college of medicine or do other things in in their local areas where they've where they've gone on and some of them are now sort of junior doctors who are who are spreading the word so it's we really hope to be able to do more of that. Obviously, the COVID situation has made it difficult for us to um, do that at the current time, but we're looking into how we can how we can support people um, and, and keep up the medical education work, which I think, as you say, is, is a real passion of mine. I've been, I've been teaching ever since I sort of qualified in various ways, and I think it is definitely a really important part of tra- that sort of healthcare evolution. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. You have to start from the bottom up and... I think it's so important to teach students about this early on in their career or even before they start their careers so that it just becomes automatic for them to reach for that tool of um, you know, integrated therapy options alongside pharmaceuticals and surgical options and whatnot so that it's not so foreign and so much of a kind of jump to um, help advise patients around, which I think is an issue that uh, we're quite aware of from our research when talking to junior doctors um, around their confidence with advising patients on nutrition. So I think it's really brilliant you're getting at it from the onset and yeah super inspiring. And I think even nutrition and, and lifestyle medicine are kind of beginning to be a bit more acceptable to most conventional um, sort of medically trained minds. But some of the complementary approaches, I think that exactly as you say, getting in there early, because just because they think about health and disease in a different way doesn't mean they're incompatible. And I think it's really, it's a bit like learning to speak a couple of languages. It's so much easier if you do it when you're, when you're young, because then you can kind of, you don't, you're not translating everything one directly one way to the other. And I think it's a really... I think some of the, the models of, of, of healthcare that different traditions from around the world use to, to, to you know, use as the lens to, from, through which to see different health problems is so interesting and, and actually yields answers in places where conventional medicine is much more limited in its, in its offer. Totally. Well, um, just to finish off, after this incredibly 
rich conversation we've had. I think I could go on for ages and ages, and I know you could too. Um, there's just so much to chat about in this area. But I'm going to leave it up to the listeners to discover more for themselves. So where can they find out more about you online and Penny Bron? So Penny Bron's got a, a very active web- website. As I said, it's www.pennybron, and that's spelled P-E-N-N-Y-B-R-O-H-N dot org dot UK. We're also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So you can find us there under using that Penny Bron um, uh, search term and there's lots going on and you know I'm also really interested to speak to people so just drop us an email at, through the Penny Brown helpline or information lines and it'd be lovely to engage with anybody who's who's got some further questions about the sorts of things I've been saying or particularly interested in hearing from conventional oncologists working in in the NHS who are interested in incorporating more of these approaches because I think we absolutely are at a stage where more and more people are recognizing that we talk about the soil and the seed, and the seed is the cancer cell, but the soil is the place that it that it is growing and and um, and, and landing in. And so, actually, attending to the the soil is the is the domain of integrative medicine. I think, and I think so many people are re- recognizing that that has a part to play. And and you know that's that's a really uh, it's always lovely to hear from people who are engaged in whatever field, um, but who are interested in exploring that. Absolutely, and we hope to get some of those um, conventional oncologists interested in this area on part two. So thank you so much, Catherine. It's truly been such a privilege having this chat with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's time to introduce another UK charity promoting the importance of integrative medicine for cancer care. Hello Robin, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, Such a shame that the Yes to Life conference can't go on because um well for now because of covid but i look super forward to it um in the next coming uh, months when it can continue so um could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and just explain what yes to life is certainly well thanks very much for inviting me i'm thrilled to be uh, joining in on this and uh, also, just to say, it was brilliant to have you speaking for us. Uh, you know, we're out always looking for openings in mainstream medicine, anywhere where there are actually listening ears, receptive ears, for the, uh, the, the, the thinking behind integrative medicine. And the uh, Nutritank initiative is brilliant. Big kudos to you and Ian for setting it up. Thank you. So, um, yeah... Um, as for introducing myself, I mean, I was just chugging along in life with a family, and the the only reason I ended up in this world is because of um, circumstances that were thrust on me and on our family, which was that my youngest daughter suddenly had cancer age nine. <clears throat> you know, this is an immense shock that, unfortunately, far too many people have to deal with. You know, we went from a problem with her leg one day to having to have her in Bristol Children's Hospital the next afternoon. Um, we had to sort of move lock, stock and barrel to Bristol from the southwest. And uh, we spent, you know, the next year dealing with that. And uh, at, at a time when, you know, orthodox medicine, that's what you got. There was nothing outside of it really very much. And, well, there was, but you couldn't find it, let's say. Um, this was the era pre-internet. Uh, you know, we didn't even have a mobile phone in those days. This, we're talking about 1990. And um, 
you know, we we just had we did find some resources to support her, but they were pretty meagre in a way. Um, so it, you know, really, this is what thrust me into this whole area, and obviously, we started thinking about it very seriously at that time, and uh, that was in 1990. And we had she had two other bouts of cancer up until she was age 23, and uh, so we had the experience of far too much of the inside of different hospitals. And we got to know the great things about hospitals, and we got to know the enormous gaps we felt there were in the hospital care. And um, so this is something we were responding to uh, at the time she died at 23. And uh, before that, I've got no history of anything to do with medicine, nothing to do with cancer. In fact, I'm absolutely no sort of medical expert, practitioner, nothing. And I keep it that way, it's fine. But I do know an awful lot of people who are. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it will be incredibly moving for listeners to hear that perspective coming from the carer stance and um, how you felt that orthodox medicine wasn't quite enough. And so it's really great that you took matters into your own hands and set up Yes to Life. And I'm sure you've benefited so many people. In fact, I know you have. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit more about uh, your family's experience and why you felt the need to look elsewhere for integrative medicine and its different modalities that it offers? Mm, certainly. <clears throat> well, as I said, uh, Rani was nine when she was first diagnosed and, uh, you know, we have a background in sort of looking towards natural health ourselves anyway, so we certainly looked outside of the box in any way we can, I could at that time. And uh, we did find some things, and you know, our uh, oncologist was aware of what we were doing as well. And uh, the response at that time, I suppose, was about as good as you could get at that time, which was that, well, none of it will make any difference, but uh, you can do it if you like. Um, so we, we did, we did everything we could. And uh, by the time she'd had another round of treatment at age 13, because she had a second diagnosis of cancers, cancer, she then had uh, 10 years of, of good life, in fact, albeit with one leg, but she certainly went for it. She had a fantastic teenage years and uh, really got to grips with life. But when she was again diagnosed age 22, um, at that point, the internet had arrived. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't a case of not much information out there. It was a case of being completely buried in information. It was mm. intense, you know. You had a very poor prognosis. They weren't really offering very much for her in, in the way of conventional care. And so looking outside the box wasn't just, like, a good thing to do. It was absolutely de rigueur. You know, we just had to look for anything we could. And uh, at that time, I was spending uh, two and a half hours in in bed and the rest of the time I was on the internet and uh, I was sifting through uh, website after website after website uh, trying to find out well what's out there that's actually for real that really is helping people um, who's doing it where are they doing it how much does it cost can I afford it can I is it only available in South America you know is it even relevant to the cancer that mm -hmm. she has there were so many questions to be answered. It was, it was like, well, you know, there, there are thousands of people in this position. They can't do this. I mean, imagine if you didn't even have somebody else to do it for you. So, you know, we knew right then, 
and uh, you know we're talking it over with Brian herself at the time. He said, "Yeah, we've got to do something about this." And mm-hmm. um, so you know the plan came to set up a charity. We didn't do it while she was still alive, but we already had uh, formed a trust at that time with the name Yes to Life, and she she was part of that. And uh, the idea was primarily to shortcut this process so that people could find out some good, relevant, accessible, uh, you know, uh, therapies that they could get for themselves, you know, build themselves their own program uh, in a reasonably quick time without having to do the sort of thing we went through. Um, so that was a kind of like our number one uh, reason for, for setting up in the first place. And so... Um, uh, Unfortunately, she died, mm-hmm. and uh, so at that point, there was, uh, you know, it was like, well, we weren't going to not do it because of that. It was the need was just the same anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact, it produced, in a way, a kind of rationale for uh, going through all of that stuff. As actually, to we you know, we weren't aware of that need until we'd been through it, and so uh, it uh, set us on the road to just getting on and doing the job. unbelievably inspiring and I guess it's such a good focus and purpose to have um, this incredible platform that you've set up you know in memory of her and to help others like herself and it's just incredible that that service is available for people so they can just have the kind of more streamlined approach rather than being um, buried in research and different options like you mentioned and so interesting to just hear about the contrast um, that the internet brought from having a very little information around uh, this type of care within the um, oncology field to just too much and we don't know what's credible and what's not so I guess there's just been such change it's crazy um, so could you just tell our listeners a bit more about Yes to Life and the services it offers and the educational events that you guys put on? Hmm, certainly. Uh, well, there's kind of two main strands to what we do. Uh, the first is really what I talked about is direct support for people with cancer. So, you know, we've got a helpline and uh, through that we're uh, helping people to access some good information quickly so they can make some decisions about what they want to do. And, uh, you know, we also support people financially, and with other information. And uh, now we've got a new service, which I'll talk about a bit later maybe, which is called Wigwam, which is also to support people uh, directly. So um, uh, on the other side, it's education. So we, we are doing everything we can to bring the message of integrative medicine to people with cancer. So uh, we've already mentioned that we put on conferences, uh, but we also put on lots of other smaller-scale events, seminars, talks, uh, film showings, workshops, all sorts of things, uh, uh, events in that way. Um, obviously, it's a bit of a change at the moment. We're not doing any of those. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we're, we're busy uh, bringing people together to let them uh, hear from experts, basically. I said earlier that I know an awful lot of people who are experts in this area, um, people like Catherine, it's great to be able to showcase her and to, to bring all her experience and expertise um, to people so they can actually hear, hear what she has to offer, question her directly. Um, additionally, we've got our own book called The Cancer Revolution, and uh, that 
is a collaborative effort by 38 people. Um, it's, uh, it's been out a little while now, but it, it's a very useful resource, I think, to people as a good starting place. It doesn't go, obviously, it can't in one book go into huge depth about any one particular topic, but it provides people with an entry point for mm -hmm. the, the whole breadth of integrative medicine, basically, and the, and the thinking behind it. Um, hmm. Well, I'm going to give you a slightly schizophrenic answer to this, Mike. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Britain is glacially slow at adopting integrative methods, particularly in cancer. Uh, you know, I tend to call us backward Britain. And there's a massive resistance to this kind of change here, while in other countries it's actually accelerating. But, on the other hand, we are actually in a very different position to 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, I like to think maybe we've contributed to this in some small way. Uh, when I set up uh, Yes to Life, uh, complementary and alternative medicine, as it would have been called then, um, was strictly the domain of crystal gazing hippies, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, we were rank outsiders. There's no getting away from it. But nowadays, uh, you know, I'm almost beginning to become used to uh, NHS health workers liking what we do. I mean, it's, you know, it's quite an extraordinary experience to uh, have this turnaround. So things really have changed. Um, the way they've changed the most is in the public. Like, you know, the public is much more aware of the connection between lifestyle and health. That's actually finally got through. They used to be completely divorced as though food had nothing to do with health, for example, you know. But now there's a, a definite connection there in most people's mind and an awful lot of people are prepared to do something about that as well, which means they will eat better in order to be healthier. So, you know, that, that concept of integrative medicine, which is that we are a whole and everything we do affects our health, is, yeah, it's getting through to the public. And I think, you know, what, as Catherine mentioned earlier, there's an upcoming swell of uh, people who are training as medics who are now already thinking that way before they start training. They already look at their own health in that way. And um, this, yeah, it, so there is a change. It, it's a bit like that thing where you have to wait for one lot to die before the real change happens, you know, the next lot come along. There's a bit of that there. But, you know, in the, the, the pace of change. But nonetheless... Uh, in many ways, you know, if I really stand back and look at where we were 15 years ago, it has changed a lot. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that is promising, but I know what you mean. It is kind of like drip feed change it can be frustrating. I can share that for sure within the medical education sphere, um, what Nutritank is dealing with at the moment. Um, so quite evangelistical here. What would you hope the future of integrative medicine in cancer looks like? Mm. Well, look, I, for me, uh, well, the, there's concepts that have been talked about in public life, particularly amongst politicians in Britain for 40 years. Like, the, the terms patient-centred care and patient choice were around in the 80s, you know, it's just they've been around forever. And, you know, they're not really happening in a big way in our health service yet. They've been trying to make them happen, and there's been lots of initiatives to try and make them happen. But uh, trying to get those ideas through, trying to, they, they also want to get people to start taking responsibility for their own health. You know, self-management, another term that's been around a lot. It has to happen so that the health service doesn't crash from financial, you know, the, the burden of costs. And um, 
this move from uh, treating people as a, a, a collection of body parts to looking at health as this whole thing where yes you put food in it does actually have an effect on what your feet are like or something you know there's just no connection between these things in the uh, kind of uh, taking to bits mm-hmm. approach of healthcare of dealing in specialities that don't talk to each other about somebody's health so all of those things they are the very they're, they're the domain mm-hmm. of what was complementary alternative medicine. That's where these people exist. That's where they live. That's where they work. They work on uh, helping people to be independent, to um, to look after themselves. They, uh, patient choices are kind of given. You know, they, they all these things, they're quite natural to that area of health. So if the health service wants to change in those directions, mm-hmm. really, it's got to stop shutting the door to this stuff. It's got to welcome them in. Uh, because then, the, the I mean, it's not like the healthcare, uh, the health service hasn't got its own, uh, you know, assets as well. You know, they are fantastic systems, fantastic technology. All of that side of things is amazing, and anybody who's had their life saved by the NHS will know this. But this being able to deal with people as people really properly and respond to them in a wholesome way is. The, the area where integration is mm. going to do this job. It's going to bring together the skills and the technology of our NHS, which if you have a heart bypass operation is, you know, fantastic. Uh, it can, it's going to bring that together with the real care that comes from listening to people and uh, respecting their choices and putting them at the centre of their own healthcare journey. So um, I, I feel like it's got to happen personally. Sure. And I'm sure there are many out there who've shared similar experiences that would agree with you. Um, but of course, we are very grateful uh, to the NHS, especially during this time um, of COVID-19. So um, speaking of COVID-19, how has it affected your work and what um, is Yes to Life doing to support people during this time? Hmm. Interesting. Well, um... If I look back over the last year, I actually can at last feel some gratitude for the financial nightmare we went through last year that pushed us into becoming a virtual organisation. It was a painful process, but uh, nonetheless, it positioned us rather well for the world of COVID-19 this year. Um, We've had our conference postponed, as you pointed out. We're coping with that, okay? It's going to happen sometime. Um, But uh, meanwhile... I'm really pleased that, you know, we just launched a significant expansion on our Wigwam support group scheme. And so this was something we were running already mm-hmm. to do with local support groups um, uh, for people with cancer who are interested in integrative medicine. And we're going to continue to grow that facility. But now it's got its own website. It's got members' resources that are going to be built. And uh, we've launched a series of online forums that enable people to engage directly with a whole range of specialists that we're going to bring along as special guests. So Wigwam's going to simultaneously grow local and global connections and support. So that's that's something, you know, Mm. we've really, uh, you know, has grown out of this really. I don't think we'd have been doing that with anything like the speed and accuracy that we have (laughs) were it not for the the current crisis. So it's a real Mm. response to that. Um, But um, in terms of, uh, you know, how this is going to affect what we do from now on. Um, 
you know, I was talking to uh, my guest who's on the radio show this week, Joe Gamble, about, uh, well, if you like, what, what are the silver linings behind going through a crisis? I mean, there are always silver linings in, in crises. Uh, people don't always find them, but that's off on the way. And um, I think uh, a kind of side effect that coronavirus has had uh, it, you know, an awful lot of people have had their cancer treatment completely stopped with no actual dates when it might restart either. Enormously harrowing situation for people who are depending on these services to stay alive, you know. But, you know, it seems to be that people who are stage four are at the back of a queue, basically. They're on the end of the list. They're more likely to have their treatment act because their prospects are not so good. I mean, it may be a fact, but God, it's not a great place to be. So, you know, that's just, it's not anybody's fault or anything. It's just been brought on by this crisis. Uh, but what it's doing, I think, is it's, um, it's causing more people than ever to look outside the box and see, well, what, what on earth am I going to do? The ones who, who are thinking resourcefully and say, well, I wonder if there is anything I can do to help myself. I'm cooped up at home here and I'm not getting any treatment. That's a, a very disempowering situation. So um, people do have the internet. They, they do have the possibility to listen to stuff, to watch stuff. And so... For a lot of people, it could be their first uh, look outside the box of just going along and having their treatment. And uh, I think once people have looked outside the box, they're, they're not likely to put the lid back on again. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you know, okay, they'll start their conventional treatment again, hopefully, but if they found something that's actually managed to keep them going and not, you know, maybe maintain their quality of life meanwhile, they're certainly not going to let go of that again. So... I think it could be a period during which uh, concepts of cancer care grow in a lot of people's minds and Mm -hmm. uh, are broadened. And from my perspective, that always has to be a good thing. Yeah, and I think it is lovely that you've managed to outline a silver lining at this challenging time. So, um, yeah, that definitely is food for thought there. So I was wondering if you would be able to share um, some advice to other family members and carers who have a loved one who um, currently is in treatment or has lost a loved one um, about just how to cope and maybe connect with others, if you could just shed some light on that. Mm. Well, it's an important one. I mean, different people respond to difficulty and loss in different ways. I think uh, Catherine's already referred to the one thing, which is that Penny Braun opens its doors to carers just as much as it does to people with cancer. And there's a good reason for that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, our experience is often that the carers actually have a worse time than the person with cancer. It's a curious thing. But uh, they somehow uh, take it upon themselves that it's their job to keep that person alive and it's their person and their job to maintain a kind of uh, stiff upper lip in the worst kind of way, you know, to mm-hmm. be strong for them. And therefore, they completely deny their own existence in all this. Uh, they work themselves you know, to the, into the ground, and they don't look after themselves at all. This is not unusual at all. And it's, it's, a, it's a kind of normal response to a life-and-death situation for a lot of people, I think. And um, so those people, uh, they do need amazing amount mm-hmm. of support, really, they do. And uh, it's good if people could... Uh, the message that that actually is 
happens to a lot of people. It's not just them. You know, lots of people are in that situation. And it's, it, it, it could be talked about a lot more that uh, being a carer is an extremely stressful job. Um, that would be good because it will then make them feel part of a community of people who are in this position. Uh, and the more that happens, the more they'll maybe be able to talk to each other and uh, support each other. So, um, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, our new wigwam forums are there. They're events at which people get a chance to actually engage themselves in them. So I hope that those will provide an opportunity for some of that. And uh, as, of course, for, for loss, that's another thing as well. Mm. Uh, you know, we've been through that. And uh, I think I think one of the most important things that I've learned uh, about loss is is that uh, different people respond to it in very different ways. And uh, we have to make room for the fact that other people respond in ways that we wouldn't. And I think for some people, other people's responses can look off the wall or, you know, uncaring or all sorts of interpretations we can place on other people's responses to loss. And uh, we need to be quite open-hearted and create a lot of space around people who've, who've lost loved ones uh, in order not to do further damage to them in a way, in order to not uh, create further stress for them in maybe the most difficult time of their life. And um, it's not about uh, forcing support on anybody. Some people actually don't want it. They actually do that cave thing where they just go mm. and they're just going to sit and tough it out. And one day they'll come out of the cave and you have to be patient and wait. Other people will want every bit of support you can possibly put at their disposal. So it's a matter of um, judgment and listening, really, just seeing what people really need. And, um, yeah, so, that, you know, our, our helpline at Yes to Life, for example, all the people who are on the helpline have uh, personal experience of cancer or of a very close friend or family member who's been through cancer, you know, in order that they can have a good understanding of where people are at who are talking to them so that they can then uh, be a good listening ear, basically. I mean, you know, listening is quite a big deal. It's quite an art and people are not generally that good at it. We're not as a race that good at listening and um, we're more busy coming up with the answers for other people. <laughs> but actually, sometimes all people need is somebody who'll actually be prepared to just listen to them. Sure. And that is such a remarkable lesson and take-home message to take from all of this, just the art of listening and having that space to do so. So thank you so much for sharing all that really useful wisdom and, and your insights around uh, being a carer. Um, so finally, where can people find out more about Yes to Life online? Well, primarily... There's the Yes to Life website. That's uh, a place where you can actually link to the other things which are online. Uh, the Yes to Life website is yestolife.org.uk. So Yes to Life's written out in full, Y-E-S-T-O-L-I-F-E. And uh, then there's Wigwam, I mentioned, which actually has its own website, uh, wigwam.org.uk. And uh, you can visit the website, but you can also become a member and uh, you'll then have access to the resources of that website and you can find details of the Wigwam events, uh, both 
on the ground when they start happening again, and also these uh, virtual events, online events. Uh, there's the Yes to Life radio show, which is on UKHealthRadio.com. Uh, our book, The Cancer Revolution, it's got its own dedicated website at thecancerrevolution.co.uk. And, of course, then we're all over social media, so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Fantastic. And we look so forward to seeing your conference happen in whenever it happens. Um, yeah, we're, it will. we're great supporters of your work and um, yeah, we need more people like you. So thank you so much, Robin. Wow, another wonderful guest. Stay tuned for new episodes on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Nutritank is an award-winning, innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now! Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice so please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you.